Welcome to the Root and Remedy podcast, where we discuss all things women's health, hormones, fertility, and body confidence. I'm your host, Vanessa, a woman's health and fertility nutritionist and the co-founder of Root and Remedy Wellness. You can find our courses, free community group, and all other resources at rootandremedywellness.com. Welcome back for part two of the history of the birth control pill. So in the first half of the episode, if you haven't already listened, go back and listen to part one. Olivia sets the stage for the two main women that kind of began this entire process. And in this episode, we are diving into the four remaining things you need to know about the history of the birth control pill, starting with the clinical trials. So it would be wise to have a pillow on hand, maybe a journal, maybe you want to take this on a walk because you're going to hear some things that are going to piss you off, quite frankly, that are probably going to frustrate you, that are going to make your jaw drop, that are going to make you feel infuriated and disgusted and confused. And all of those feelings, whatever you feel is 100% valid. Olivia literally blew my mind a hundred times in this episode, already even in part one, but especially in part two. So I'm not going to talk about it too much. I'll just let you listen for yourself, but kudos to you for listening to part two of this episode, for going out of your way to get this education. It's so important as we will especially talk about in the end of the episode, but without further ado, let's get back to my conversation with our co-founder, Olivia Berkovitz. So in order for the FDA to approve the pill, now they have a prototype, they have something, they of course have to test it and they have to see if it's going to work. But in Massachusetts at the time, which is where they were stationed or located, it was illegal to distribute contraception. And so in order to launch a legitimate trial, it was going to be next to impossible to do so legally. And so they had to kind of navigate around those barriers, those legal barriers. And it was really high stakes because if authorities were alerted, Pincus and Rock, so Gregory, the researcher, and then our McDreamy, <laughs> Dr. Rock, <laughs> would be at least fined potentially thousands of dollars, but they also risked jail time. So right. this was a really serious endeavor for them. And now conveniently for them, Gregory Pincus had connections through Harvard to uh, a state hospital called Worcester Hospital. I hope I didn't butcher that name because I don't know. People are going to come after Massachusetts me sure. <laughs> has some like old British names. Yeah. I'm like, is it Worcester? Is it Worcester? Yeah, you know what we're talking about. I don't know. That's it's like okay. Worcestershire or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to say Worcester State yeah. Hospital. Please sure. correct me if that's wrong. Um, so many of his colleagues there had been conducting trials on mentally ill patients. So he used just this connection they just because they could. Mm. So he just happened to know, I'm going to have to go a little bit outside of the box in order to do this, and I have this existing connection, so maybe I'll try it here. And they were able to. So they launched the first trial with only 16 patients, and it was under the pretense of studying the pill's tranquilizing effects. So they really, I mean, that's not what they were trying to do. They were trying to find out if this prevented pregnancy. Oh, but they had to frame it in a way that would pass. Exactly. Wow. They had to frame it in a way that was going to pass muster. And so they said, okay, we're trying this on mentally ill patients. Does it have tranquilizing effects? Not really what they were looking at, but wow. this is the, the way that they positioned it. Thinking outside the box indeed. Uh, yeah. So now what's really upsetting and horrible, other than the fact that they just did this in the first place, 
is that they even conducted surgery on these women to find out what the pill did to the uterus. So they were like, yeah. And so we have to really think, I mean, we don't have a lot of information about who these women were, what issues they were dealing with. Could they really consent? Did they understand what they were doing? Particularly if they're being subjected to surgery. And I mean, even if they're being subjected to a, a sort of medication that has at this point completely unknown side effects, because this is the first group that it's being tested on. And now what is so troubling is that this research largely, largely adhered to the ethics regulations at the time. So there were some people that went against it. There were some people that thought, you know, this is wrong. We shouldn't be testing against these populations. So we're glad to know that like someone cared, but it did pass technical muster, which Most is people were like, it's all good. We don't care about them anyways. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, if we think back to Buck v. Bell, yeah. th- these populations weren't seen as having the same rights as other people. And so they were a group that was ripe to be able to study, which is just, I mean, it's horrible. To is think it like kind of how we view animals right now? It's almost like similar. Yeah. In yeah. that way, which is, again, unbelievable. Totally. But it's just the reality of the situation. Yeah. It's sort of, I think, I mean, it's hard to even put my mind there. I don't fully know what mm-hmm. they were thinking, but I imagine it was something about like, well, they don't live a normal life anyways, and so we might as well use them sort of right. to our advantage. Right. I imagine it was something like that. Um, but of course, it's just kind of unconscionable. And it's just so interesting because even you and I have chatted so much about the ethics process that I had to undergo for my own PhD, which was very rigorous. Like I went underwent a really intense ethics review process and I'm just interviewing people. I'm just chatting. <laughs> I'm not even like testing medicine or slicing into them. Yeah, like, you don't do no surgeries. No. And so the ethical standards now are just very different. But the story really also touches on medical exploitation and researchers exploitation of different communities. And so it's it's kind of a, it's a story about these specific people, but it's also very much a story of the time. Yeah. The, this was the 1950s. So things were not where we are today. So now they conducted these studies. They realized that they had a very small population a very small sample size. This was only 16 women. In order to get this to the FDA, they had to have a larger pool of people, which brings us to the fourth thing. Do you know what they figured out? Were they like, holy crap, this is working? Yeah, I think they were like, okay, we have enough data to know that we need to move on and do more. It doesn't tranquilize, but it shuts down ovulation. Exactly. Right, okay. So they were like, okay, we need to do more. And we're limited within the bounds of our legal system. We're limited in the U.S. So the fourth thing that I think that everyone needs to know is that researchers experimented on impoverished Puerto Rican women. That was the next phase and the largest phase of these clinical trials. So not only did they need more participants, but they needed to study them over a period of time. They had to know what some of the longer-term consequences were. Okay, I need you to fact-check me on something. Because I heard... I don't know if this is correct. Mm-hmm. I heard that they started in a different population. Mm. But um, so they started, I heard they started in a first world country. Mm-hmm. And, but there were so many side effects that they had to shut it down. And then they found a loophole by going to Puerto Rico and testing on Puerto Rican women. Do you know if, it, is that what happened? Or did they just jump right to Puerto Rican women? Um, I wouldn't be shocked if that's what right. happened. Um from my understanding, they were mostly thinking like, we just need a, a larger sample size, but it's very right. possible. It is, 
absolutely true that there were a lot of consequences. And so I think, I don't think they were like, oh, this is fabulous. We need just like a bigger pool of people. I think they were kind of like, okay, stuff's happening here. We're experiencing some problems, but also in order to know if that is actually problematic or if it's just this group of people, you need more, right? right? So I think there were possibly a few different factors. It wasn't like, it wasn't the pill that we have today. Mm -hmm. These were, this was literally first iteration. So, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but there were way more hormones. Like the quantities of estrogen and progesterone were like 10 times what it is now. Huge. I can't even imagine what that would do to me. Oh yeah. my God, I think I'd be like, a raging murderer. Like, I think I would just be a monster. Totally. And so it would not shock me yeah. to know that there were definitely complications. There were a lot of factors of why they had to move on. So they decided to go with Puerto Rico. And it was kind of the perfect place for them to conduct this research. There were no laws banning contraception. There were very few regulations in place protecting people. There were several U.S.-funded clinics already set up that were run by American doctors. So there was already some infrastructure in place that they could take advantage of. And much of the country lived in poverty, and they were experiencing a huge population boom. So at the time, there was a very aggressive surgical sterilization policy in place in Puerto Rico. They were experiencing tremendous number or amounts of, of poverty and sort of uncontrollable rates of population growth that the government just couldn't handle. And so they started sterilizing women. So basically this was the perfect, these were the perfect conditions to create this trial because women were living in poverty. Not, not everyone, of course, but there were some really impoverished areas. They wanted to control their childbearing, but many of them were also very afraid to be sterilized. And so now all of a sudden we had a group of researchers coming in and saying, we have a different option. It isn't permanent. It's something that's going to prevent pregnancy. And now you don't have to get sterilized. Just try our product. And so they really took advantage of those circumstances. And so the trials ran from 1955 to 1958. And interestingly, many educated Puerto Rican women refused to participate because they didn't understand what the consequences were going to be. And so they actually, the researchers, set up their efforts in the poorest areas of San Juan and other cities. So they were really going to the place where they knew that people were desperate enough and wouldn't necessarily fight, not fight back, but wouldn't, um, would be easier targets, yeah. I guess. And so another added dimension, which is really horrible to think about is the fact that many of these women didn't speak English. Mm. They didn't know what they were consenting to. And they didn't really understand the forms that they were signing. They also weren't always told that it was an experiment. That it was presented very much as we have a medication. The medication does X, take the medication. They didn't necessarily know that they were part of a clinical trial. It's very different to say, we are testing this drug will you be a test subject versus we have a drug, use our drug. Right. Those are two very different things. A test versus a solution are two completely different paths. And if you think you're getting a solution, you feel a lot safer mm -hmm. than if you're like, be our experiment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so again, I mean, it goes completely against our idea of informed consent today. Today, you ha a research participant has to know. Yeah, that could not happen. No, mm -hmm. absolutely not. And so this 
is really the dark undercurrent of the story of the pill. Because it was imagined not only as a tool of women's liberation, but also as a way to limit overpopulation and poverty and a way to really control certain groups' childbearing. Now, there's a scholar that I really love. I've read um, much of her work. Her name is Laura Briggs. And she talks a lot about Puerto Rico and the use of uh, Puerto Rico for these clinical trials. And she talks about the fact that researchers at the time viewed Puerto Rico as, quote, a living laboratory, which is just, I honestly have no words. I don't even know how you can say that about a population. Like, it, it's crazy that that was said and people were like, yeah, yeah, sounds good to me. They're like, oh yeah, that is how Whereas, we think about it. Again, that is, is something that's is sickening because you know the complications and the domino effect of what a statement like that means. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I'll introduce just one more name. Uh, there was a man by the name of Clarence Gamble. He was the heir to Procter and Gamble, which mm. you probably recognize. Also big money. Uh, he was a friend of Margaret Sanger and he was a doctor involved in the Puerto Rican trials. So he very much took this view. Puerto Rico is a living laboratory. This is a place where we can conduct experiments. We can try things out. If they work, great, we'll bring it back to America. This was his view. These were, I mean, Gregory Pincus and Margaret Sanger's views as well. Did he just want to jump on this because he saw it as like a money-making opportunity? He was already there. So he was already running some of these clinics. And then he sort of jumped on it because he was friends with Margaret Sanger. So he saw, I think, the potential benefit of what a product like the pill could right. do. Because also keep in mind something really important. This was not only breaking barriers in terms of women's contraception, but this was a new type of drug because medication at the time was built to address a set of symptoms. It was meant to cure an illness, but this was a drug for healthy people. Mm -hmm. This was a lifestyle drug. This was something that would just change your body, but it wasn't actually fixing something. And so it was a completely new category in a way that we don't even really think about it now because it just kind of exists. And so he jumped on this bandwagon, but even before he was working at these clinics and now something that is just so fucked up, he had these clinics and he was giving out spermicidal foams and jellies instead of the more reliable option, which were diaphragms, which they had access to. And so this is, I'm quoting, Laura Briggs, who is the scholar I mentioned before, she writes, Gamble believed these methods were more suited to the abilities of impoverished women. The diagram, he felt, was too difficult for their limited skills and intelligence and so would not be widely used. And so he decided, I have both options. I have something that's not very reliable and I have something that is more reliable. I'm going to give them the thing that's less reliable because it's easy. It's easy to use. They'll probably use it. The other thing's too complicated. They don't understand. Like, it's so... Oh, it's so horrible to think about, but these were the ideas that were informing these decisions at the time. And now you have, think about the power dynamic here. You have a American doctor or a wealthy American doctor coming into this place, giving local women who have very few options, something that is not going to be all that effective. But because he thinks they're dumb. hundred percent. He's like, you're not smart enough to insert this and use it correctly. So let's give you the suboptimal one, but mm -hmm. a monkey could do it. So here you go. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's horrible and fascinating for me to think about the way that these underlying understandings of racialized groups, impoverished groups, how they changed 
medical decisions. And we even think about, this is something that you and I have chatted about before, the way in which birth control packages were created with the days of the week, literally because they thought that women were too stupid and wouldn't remember them. Right. So it's all of these ideas, these misogynistic, racist ideas that are woven through in a way that once you peel back those layers, you're just dumbfounded. Also, that's something that I I get really pissed off about even now. Obviously, Mm -hmm. very different from what it was before, but it really bothers me that women and menstruators today are still spoken to a lot of the time like they're dumb, Mm -hmm. like they're stupid, like they can't make their own decisions. Everybody else knows what's best for them. Like given all of the information, they will not make the right choice and it just boils my blood Mm -hmm. still. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm not saying that it's as bad as it was by any stretch, but that's still an undercurrent and Mm -hmm. an issue that I feel like we still face to a lesser degree. Mm -hmm. Of course, in some areas more than others, but that's still something that's just so frustrating to hear how insane and ludicrous and how blown up it was Mm -hmm. in in this time is just infuriating. A hundred percent. And I think this goes back to something that we were chatting about a minute ago, which is that these ideas don't necessarily go away. They just kind of change their face. And over time, at least in certain places, they've become a little bit more diluted. Granted, there are places in the world that still have very blatantly racist, misogynistic views. I mean, that is just kind of the world that we exist in right now. But these things don't just evaporate into thin air. And again, I mean, I have to kind of keep reminding myself that we're talking about the 50s and 60s. This is like within my mom's lifetime. Mm -hmm. It is not that long ago. We're not talking about like the 14th century or something. So these things don't really dissolve. They just kind of, they might mellow or we might present them in a different way, but they're still extremely harmful and causing real consequences, even as you mentioned, even in the way that women and menstruators are treated uh, by the medical establishment. And again, this is not to demonize specific doctors. I think that most healthcare professionals are just really trying their best, but we can still critique the system and the way that it works, right? And I think especially you know, when we experience it in a certain way. And you and I are very privileged women. So this is even our experience. And yet we think about other populations and and the way even today it can be so much worse. But taking us back to, to the 50s. Now, the next thing that I think is really essential for us to know is that these experiments cause really serious side effects. This is something we hear a lot about when we're talking about the pill. And as we mentioned at the top of the episode, there are a lot of people today saying the pill has so many side effects. And it it does. You know, we should know about those. But at the time, it was much worse. Mm. So participants, like I said, knew that the pill prevented pregnancy, but they weren't given safety information about the product they often didn't know it was experimental and they really didn't know that they were part of the clinical Are trial. these the Puerto Rican women or is now, are now we moving past the Puerto Rican These are the Puerto Rican, Rican women. Okay. Yeah. So we're still here. Yeah. So many women during these trials experienced side effects from nausea to blood clots. And so there were much higher concentrations of estrogen, synthetic estrogen, synthetic progesterone than there are in today's pills. Now, the doctor who was in charge of the Puerto Rican experiments tried her best to draw attention to these side effects. There were about 17% of women in that first cohort that had really severe consequences in these trials. And yet, Gregory Pincus downplayed this. He was very aware that these 
that this drug was causing potential issues. And he sort of silenced that in a way that is, of course, really problematic. Now, alarmingly, three women even died during the trials. However, there were never autopsies conducted, so we don't know for certain what caused their deaths. Well, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where the question lies. But even today, we know that there are some pretty serious consequences. There's a huge problem with the Nuva Ring. Like, that's Mm -hmm. a big, big one where people are like, listen. Yeah. Like, a lot of parents are talking about how their daughter has literally died as a side effect. Like, if you, we we were talking about the movie The Business of Birth Control. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend anyone watch this if you're interested in, if this episode is like peaked your interest at mm-hmm. all very 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 good um documentary and it's just it's there's so many unclosed loops so many questions but yeah how convenient that if there's no guarantee that it was from this trial drug if you never did an autopsy to confirm it mm-hmm. you know that's just yeah incredibly convenient for Gregory Pincus exactly know? exactly but the doctor who was in charge of those experiments, she was very concerned. So we do see that there are kind of different factions of thought, even within these clinical trials. But of course, Gregory Pincus, it was very much his project, and it was his name on the line, and so he kind of pushed it through. Which brings me to the sixth thing that I think that everyone should know about the pill. Pincus really fudged the data, or he massaged the data. He presented (laughs) it in a way that worked for him. So this guy's ruthless. He's like, I will bring this to market no matter what. That's like, a great way of saying it. Basically, everyone involved here, they were ruthless. ruthless. Yeah. ruthless yeah, they were. And that's the thing when you're driven by your principles, like at what cost? So we're seeing all of the consequences now of taking these different routes of doing it in this way. And it was very problematic. I mean, people were hurt. Right. And so regardless, it was brought to market in 1960. So basically what he did was... He really positioned it in a way that made it sound the most rigorous as he possibly could. So typically when we think about a drug that comes to market, we assume that it's been tested thoroughly, that we, you know, it has had multiple phases of different trials, there have been a lot of people involved, we've weeded things out, it's the best possible it can be. Total for the clinical trials, there were only 130 women that were studied. I was assuming it'd be hundreds of thousands, at the very least thousands. Yeah, we would think thousands. 130. 130. So now what Pincus did was instead of talking about research subjects, he talked about cycles observed. So remember, the trials were going over a two-year period. So he observed 100 and I guess 15-ish, 114 women over the course of two years. Now when we're talking about, we're talking about thousands of cycles, And the implication or the impression that that gives is that there are thousands of women here being tested. No, there are only about 100, a little over 100, but we're looking at their cycles. So he was really not being the most truthful uh, in order to bring this to market. Which is already sketchy. Which is already so sketchy. Yeah, which is, there's like, Sketchiness is the nicest way of putting it, and that's just woven through every single step. Like every turn, you're like, oh, that sketch is fuck. That is not good. And so it was brought to market, like I said, right at the beginning of the episode. Women absolutely flocked to it. And I mean, rightly so. We were living in a world before where women's options were so limited. This was the first, or really the first 
quote unquote reliable, we think it's, they think it's reliable thing that we could do that women could do to prevent pregnancy. And so consequences be damned, they were going to try it. And now what's crazy too is we think like, okay, so there have been so many problems over the course of this story. They did, the researchers conducted themselves in ways that would absolutely not fly today. But at least women have this product now. However, it was only made available to married women. So the average woman who wanted to explore birth control wasn't available. And it actually wasn't available until 1972, which is really not that long ago. So it was in a Supreme Court decision. Literally 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And only to married women 50 years ago. Yeah. So for the first sort of like 15-ish years, roughly, the first 12 years, it was only available. Because they were like single, whatever, if you get pregnant, it's no, like I don't understand why it would be married women only. I mean, again, it was thinking about that ideology of sex should exist within marriage. So if we think about it, if we think that in society only married people are having sex anyways, it's only married people that need this. That was really like the idea behind it, which of course, as we know, is like absurd. (laughs) But then you can really signal out and again, shame a population by being like, well, it's your fault. Mm -hmm. You're you disgusting person. You're Mm -hmm. having sex outside of marriage. No wonder you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. Not my problem. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, keep in mind too, abortion wasn't legal at this point. So there are very few options. What a nightmare. Oh my God. And that's, that's really where we want to avoid going to Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the future because we're stepping slowly into that place, which is, yeah, very scary. We have very few other than like celibacy, but I mean, like, let's Get be out real. Of here with that. Like, no, no. <laughs> well, exactly. Like, it's not, it's not a viable option. Yeah. And so, yeah, that is. I mean, there is so much more we could do. Honestly, an entire. We will definitely do another episode. podcast show. Yeah. Every every episode could have been one thing. I just really tried to hit the sort of the main points, but yeah, it's a really complicated story. It's really nuanced, and and I think. There are some parts we're glad that today we have the pill and we want to really be educated about what the pill is, but also at what cost, Mm -hmm. you know, like we do have to think a little bit more deeply, especially even today, even though the trials aren't happening now, they happened long ago, but just even knowing these things I think is really necessary. Um, I mean, also trite, but like knowledge is power. The more we know, the more we can make these decisions and maybe you are someone who's like kind of on the fence and you're like, I don't like the legacy of this or even, you know, yeah, just knowing a little bit more I think is, is really powerful. Yeah. It helps you form your own opinion too. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, and I don't know if you, you know the answer to this, Mm -hmm. but since then the 130 ish people that were Mm -hmm. tried and then of course I'm assuming they've made improvements, but I've also heard that they haven't improved the pill since the Mm nineties. It's the same pill we've had in the Mm nineties, which is ridiculous again because of how much technological advancement we've done mm-hmm. I don't again don't know if that's factual but I'm assuming there's there's been progression and progression more yeah. studies more studies do you know to what extent that's happened I'm not certain about which studies have been conducted I would assume <laughs> that there you have been hope. more certainly the actual formulation of the pill has evolved considerably since the 60s 
it's even interesting too. I remember when going on the pill, this was a conversation that I had with my mom because at the time, I mean, I didn't really know any better. And I just thought like, they told me it's going to help with my cramps and you know, this seems like a good option. And I think she was very much thinking about it from her vantage point of her generation. And she was a teen in the early seventies. So she was thinking about kind of like the first iterations of the pill. So she was very much like, the consequences are dire. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like having that sort of early pill mentality, whereas I tried to sort of quell that by saying, well, it's changed. It's not as powerful as it used to be. It's still pretty powerful for sure. And now I know more. But yeah, it's definitely, I would say, an evolution of the formulation. I would assume that there have been other studies conducted. They have to conduct studies in order to bring new right. brands, obviously, to market, right? So when like a les was created for example that they would have needed their own clinical trial in terms of whether or not it's changed since the 90s i'm actually not sure we should look that up we should mm -hmm. yeah i mean if you told me that factually i would say yeah knowing what you know you'd be like i'm not surprised yeah i'm infuriated sure. but i'm not surprised exactly exactly and i hope that's not true right um i don't know but yeah i would be very curious to look that up and it does make me excited that at least from what I've been reading, there is a lot more advancement going on with non-hormonal forms of birth control, Definitely. mimicking cervical fluid, understanding how things work. Obviously, like there have there was a hop, skip, and a jump with male birth control. We don't really know what's going on with that and, and how realistic that is, right? Mm -hmm. But at the very least, there are conversations that are being had as opposed to, okay, the pill has been the vast majority that people are going to be taking, and it's usually the go-to option, but is it really the best? Are there other things that we can make, especially with the technology we have, the, the way that we understand physiology and ovulation and fertility and all this stuff. So I just, it does give me a little bit of hope mm -hmm. that we're moving that direction. But I want to ask you, and I, we won't end the episode on like a, <laughs> like a doomsday note, but I, I just want to ask, cause I think it's interesting. And it's always this concept of just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean you should look away mm -hmm. or like, doesn't mean you shouldn't have the conversation. Like, sometimes things don't have a happy ending and that's okay. Yeah. Or sometimes, you know, you're going to try to see the silver lining or it's going to really motivate you to act because you're like, I won't stand for this. Mm -hmm. But what do you think the future of birth control looks like? The future of the pill? If you could just speculate on that for a second, what do you think that looks like? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, at this point in time, I see things kind of moving into divergent directions. I think there are a whole movement of women who are abandoning the pill, who are more interested in non-hormonal, more intuitive options like fertility awareness method. That does, there's kind of like an extreme of that that ties into what we talked about before, which is like the demonization of the pill. I think it's something, it's something that I see as very polarizing right now. I think, yeah, there's a whole kind of group of women that are going to be rejecting it and have the freedom and the ability to reject it and to really mobilize those narratives of like natural womanhood yeah. and like messing up our hormones and blah, blah, blah. And I think that is good to an extent. When it becomes shamey and blamey and fear mongering, then I get less interested mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. um, because of course we don't want to reject medicine, reject science, but if you're choosing that for your own body and you have the ability to, and you're coming at it from a place of, this is my choice, you and you and you choose whatever works for you, I think that, that that's great. 
at the other sort of side of the um, of the equation, I think there are also going to be a group of people that are needing to go on the pill now because some of their other options are limited. Right. So in many states right now, there are total abortion bans. Other ones have very restrictive abortion policies. There are other states that have very protective abortion policies. So the states is kind of a bit of a mess right now. We're lucky to be living in Canada where abortion is not criminalized. But I could see a whole contingent of women who didn't want to be on the pill, wouldn't have otherwise been on the pill, but now see that as a necessary evil Mm -hmm. in order to make sure that they don't get pregnant. Right. Because, I mean, even you and I have chatted about before, we both do fertility awareness method. We both track our cycles. Um, But if termination wasn't an option, it would complicate the decision. Oh, yeah. I would... I would have to take time to Mm -hmm. figure that out because you almost, you forget that it's even a choice that you have the luxury of Mm -hmm. choosing. Like I know that if I messed up or like I told you the other day, if I ever like slacked off or whatever, I know I've got that option. It's like the net is there to catch me. Of course. I would have to think long and hard if Mm -hmm. I lived in a place where it is impossible or if I had to at that point, I would have to travel long distances, pay Mm -hmm. a certain amount, totally, whatever it is. Or I would just have to accept that I'm pregnant and I'm going to have a child right now. Right. And those are things that you'd have to really, or me personally, would have to think really long and hard of in comparison to what, what's my priority? Is my priority right now not having the side effects of birth control or is it not getting pregnant? Yeah. And I don't know. I could see a world where if it was in, like completely not accessible to me, I would definitely entertain mm-hmm. a hormonal birth control for a, a, the next however many years until I'm ready. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't feel bad about that. Yeah. It's just, again, what is best for you, but then it just pisses me off that that choice again is just getting taken away Exactly. when that person may not even realize it's getting taken away, Mm -hmm. you know? Totally. Yeah. And I think then it becomes a choice between two bad options. Mm -hmm. And that's really sad because the best thing that we can do is give ourselves or not even give ourselves, but have people give us more options, more choice, more education. Like we always talk about. And that's why I really encourage people who think about the pill as this horrible, horrible thing that shouldn't even exist, I would really challenge that narrative because yes, it has its consequences. It can be harmful physiologically, but you know what's also harmful physiologically? Carrying a pregnancy to term if you don't want to, being forced into motherhood. That is also really detrimental to someone's health, mental health, physical health, et cetera. I mean, and you and I are going to have another episode at some point about abortion, which I'm very excited and interesting for. But I think that these subjects all really tie into one another. And so in terms of the future of the pill, I think it's tough to know where we go. Mm -hmm. And I think it really depends on the way in which legislation moves. And this kind of brings me back to one of my original points, which is that medicine doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is a reaction to society. It changes society. It, it's both. There's this kind of like bi-directional situation. And so we have to be looking at both. And there was even um, an Instagram video that I saw a while ago, and they were talking about that. It was a doctor who was talking about um, the pill that's now available without a prescription and just basically saying, again, something kind of clickbaity, like, this is terrible for women. And that really pissed me off because, first of all, I mean, not to, like, be annoying about it, but, no, like, it's a man. About it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you don't have to deal with this anyways. <laughs> like, oh, stop making decisions for me. It makes me so mad. <laughs> 
But also, seriously, though, it's infuriating. You're like, you don't even have to deal with the consequences here. Like, why are you being so blatantly polarizing? Totally. Like, shut I, up. For shut sure. Up. And I think, like, it is absolutely valid for medical professionals to give their medical opinion. But what I would have loved to have seen is, like, I think this is not great for X reason. However, when we consider the broader context, maybe it has its place. Like maybe we can understand why there's a pill that you don't need a doctor's prescription for. And I think people could debate whether or not that's right. But I think, again, it's like the law changes and so our hands are forced. And so we're trying to make other decisions. Is it great that the pill is just like available and out there? It's a serious drug. Like, again, from a medical stance, we could really debate that. Mm -hmm. But I think there has to be an acknowledgement of what's going on in society and the way in which this is a reaction to that. Right. Well, I'm also just very grateful that we've had this conversation in the sense that someone can listen and do what they want with mm -hmm. this information. But at least now you know, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think at least... Before I met you, I never really thought critically about these things. I thought about it from a personal health perspective mm -hmm. and I had my own views, but I never, ever learned about it from a historical perspective until right. I literally did my teacher training. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, wait, what the fuck? What? Pardon? <laughs> yeah. I thought it was like all in beautiful laboratories. Everyone was a happy volunteer. It was mm -hmm. like so safe. So, and I was like, Oh, how naive I was, right? <laughs> like I, but I didn't even give it a second thought. So yeah. that's why I love that. Not only are we publishing this for everybody to hear and and say, okay, how do I feel about this? If it makes me mad, all right, let me let me think about why that makes me mad. What do I want to do about it? Mm -hmm. Or what are some other questions I need to ask? Like use that emotion to mm -hmm. drive whatever else you want to do next, or to help you make your own personal decision, because that whole concept of it probably should make you mad because a lot of really fucked up stuff happened to get us to the pill. It doesn't mean the pill is inherently bad, but it just means that we do need to know what happened and, and it, exactly at what cost to, to create something like this. Exactly. And just weighing the pros and cons. So I feel like it's, it's just fabulous for us to have this history. And I feel like you spoke to it so beautifully and oh, you really you. did a good job of saying like, you weren't polarizing in my opinion mm. in saying, okay, these are, these are the things, these are the good things. These are the bad things. These are really fucked up things. Like mm. these are some things that aren't answered to this day. And I just feel like people will now listen to this and either have more questions, which we will answer. Mm -hmm. We are going to pull everybody, get some more questions and keep this conversation going, but it also gives them the power to make their own decision. And that's really what it's all about. Yeah, completely agree. And I think I'm so glad that we're talking about this too, because I think there is a whole social side of these issues that we talk about all the time on social media and in the podcast. And we talk about it very much from like the perspective of our bodies and what's happening in our bodies. But to your point, I mean, science doesn't just like exist. Medicine doesn't, it doesn't just crop out of nowhere and sort of bloom from the ground. And it just kind of is like, yes, science is amazing. And we talk about objectivity and reliability and all these things that feel very value neutral. But at the end of the day, it is created by people. It is enacted by people. Like I wanted to just kind of dive into who the team was a little bit, just so you understand the very human motivations and sometimes the very self-serving mm -hmm. motivations and the impact that it's now had 60 years later, we're still using it. It's still the most uh, popular form of reversible birth control on right. the market, like 
hundreds of or over 100 million people are using it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, thinking a, a little bit about these legacies, I think, is um, is such a great way to move forward. And also just to feel a little bit more empowered. Like, it's not a very uplifting story, <laughs> of course, but anything in terms of reproductive medicine is just, it's really complicated. And so if we can understand that uh, amazing, empowering part of it, but then understand the darker side, we can, I think, move forward um, in a better way. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for listening to the Root and Remedy podcast. If you like this episode and you find our information helpful, then it would mean the world to us if you would leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Whether that's Spotify, Apple, Google, or somewhere else, just click that rating and review button and leave five stars. That allows us to continue to bring you great guests, free information in the women's health field, and get this podcast out to more people who need it. And of course, if you want to explore any of our courses, our one-on-one services, or any other resources we have, you can find everything at rootandremedywellness.com.